Well, you can all have a seat in the kids if they uh, want to head back to kids' class. I'm pretty sure we're having kids' class today. Um, sorry, Miss Kelly's teaching. Brandon, it's good to have you back with us and your your kids, and we are lifting up the rest of your family. Uh, they had a little baby girl born last Tuesday morning, um, so we're we're excited about that, and we can be praying for Lacey and for Lily, the little girl. Um, up in the spring, still recovering and, and growing. <laughs> and so uh, let's just keep joining in that. Um, as uh, we just sang, now truly is the time to worship. And let me just say real quick that I, I don't know that there's a time not to worship. One of the reasons I love that song, and it's, it's one I mean, some of us have been singing, I don't know, for 25, 30 years. I don't even know. I'm getting a nod yes from my mother-in-law. Um, who was leading worship in a church way back when in, in a worship team, so she would know. Um, and just say that there is, there is never a time not to worship. There is never a time, and today truly is the time to give our hearts to the Lord. Amen? Um, the other thing I want to comment on as we think about the music is just what a joy it is to sing about how he lives just before we are about to be talking a whole lot about his death. One of the beautiful things as Christians is that we know the end of the story. We know that, that even as we approach the cross, as we begin preaching into this section of the book of John, is, is if you're a Christian or even if you've been to church before, you know that his death is not the end of the story. And it's one of the reasons why we can confidently as Christians uh, proclaim and be joyful and, and excited about the death of someone that every one of us should love more than any other love we've ever had. And so it is a joy today to get to speak about difficult things. It is a joy. It's an utter joy. Shortly after the Constitution was finished, the Constitution of the United States, that is, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter in 1789 declaring our new constitution is, now, constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now we are, right now, I, I would venture to guess uh, that, that what Benjamin Franklin had in mind in terms of taxes is well beyond anything he probably envisioned and thought for in terms of tax code and whatever else. But he could be certain that there would be taxes, and he could be certain that there was death. Death is one of those things that is truly common to all men and women. Everyone who has ever been conceived has or will sooner or later die. There are a few exceptions, of course, in biblical history. Namely, Enoch and Elijah come to mind, two men who were carried away, and we don't even know what that really means, but who found eternity without death. Notably, though, we must note as Christians that Jesus, the Son of God, was not one of those who escaped death. One who had been conceived, lived, and died Notable why? Because Jesus is who? He's the creator of life. 
He is the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. And Jesus, our Lord, experienced death. This is where we are in the book of John today. John chapter 19, verses 23 through 37. I'd invite you to turn there. And this is a kind of a big section. Um, just where we are. The reality as I, as I looked through this passage this week to be preparing for this sermon is the recognition that, that if we wanted to, we could spend at least 12 to 15 weeks in this section. The reality of, of the weight of, of this deserves that much time. The beautiful thing that we have as Christians is that you do not need to be here in this room in order to spend the 12 to 15 weeks of studying this passage. You do not have to sit under a pastor to appreciate, get, gain, and learn what you need to out of this passage. It's one of the beautiful things that we have as Christians is the ability to open our Bibles on our own. So let me just tell you, my hope for today is, is to wet your whistle, as it were. To introduce some ideas, thoughts, and topics so that you might even spend the next couple weeks in this passage and in another that I'm going to point out to you later on in this sermon as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday, which is in two weeks. Most of us do not spend enough time in the death of Jesus so that we can adequately celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Most of us will spend the next two weeks of our lives going about our normal every day. We will be working, we will be sleeping, we will be eating, we will be playing, we will be studying, we will be learning, and we will not put more than a few extra thoughts into the season that we're in as we think upon the death of Christ so that we might celebrate all the more the resurrection that's coming. I really appreciate the song today because he lives, because it frames for us the next two weeks. It frames for us as we think about what Jesus has done and what Jesus in a future sort of sense will do in the resurrection and what he does in our lives because his life does not die alone and raise alone, but we, if we are Christians, die with him and rise with him. And it is because he died and because he lives that you and I can face tomorrow, no matter what that tomorrow is. Be that blessing or a curse, be that health or be that death, it's because he died and he lives that we can face tomorrow. Amen? Amen. So let's read this. And I want us to have the weight of this. Right? If you're a Christian, this should be a weighty passage. If you're not a Christian, honestly, this should be a weightier passage. As you wrestle and struggle with, did the author of life, did Jesus, if he was the Son of God, suffer and die and why? Right? As the Christian, we've accepted this. We believe it. And it carries the weight of one that we love dying and suffering in our place. If you're not a Christian, you're here today, then today is the day to hear and listen and make a decision about whether or not this is true. Because if this is true, then this is worth your life. 
So we're in John chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see those, or to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Friends, there is a weight, and there should be. There is a weight as we consider the death of Jesus. And I pray that that weight would cover us today. I pray that the words that I would speak today would be weighty. But I also pray that they would be life. That they would lift us up. That they would bring us to a place of joy and celebration today because as we've already sung today now is the time to worship and I pray that the words that I would speak even now would, would lead us into worship as we consider the death of Jesus now friends there's a lot of things that as a pastor I have had to convince people of there are a lot of things as a pastor that I have had to talk people into one of them is not death Death is one of those things that we know exists, is real, and that unless there is an intervention of Christ come sooner than he has thus far, something you and I will all experience it. As teenagers, we may believe we are invincible, but we know we're not. As kids, we may be completely unaware of how easy death 
can come. But even some of the smallest kids know about and are aware that, that, that people die. As adults, we may do everything we can do to stave off death's effects, but we know what? We know that death is coming. Cancer, COVID, despair leading to suicide, murder, so-called natural causes. This is not something we need to be convinced of. It's something that we see with our eyes every single day in one way or another. For some of us, we have experienced death this year, obviously not our own, but the death of, of loved ones. Some of us in our church have experienced the death of four or five or six loved ones this year. For some of us, it is a daily reality that we wake up and we think about those that we've lost. For some of us, we know that it is coming for us sooner than we would like. But if that's the case, then why is death so hard to deal with? Right? If it's something that even a small child knows about and that every teenager considers and that every young adult is experiencing and that as adults we experience it more and more, why is it so hard? It's because as natural and normal as death is in our experience and in our existence, as certain as death is, is for every single one of us unless Jesus comes back and rescues us in a way that he did with Enoch and with Elijah. Death was not, is not, and never will be normal. Death is, according to Scripture, an interruption into God's perfect order. Death is an enemy. Death is a just punishment for sin, the consequence of the actions of Adam and Eve and all of us who ratify what they did in our own personal choices. Death is an interruption in an otherwise eternal existence. Death is an interruption in an otherwise perfect creation. The reason death is so hard is because death was not meant to be. I wish I had the time to paint the full biblical picture of death today, but we do not. Let me just tell you, if you ever sit down, and this would be a great thing to do, but read and the whole scripture through and pay attention to the death stories. Pay attention to what's said about death and talked about death. I wish we had time to do that. It would take us longer than what we have today. We must settle for, for what I just want to say is one simple truth that I hope we can all agree on, and that is this, that humanity was made to live. Humanity was made to be alive. Not for ourselves alone, but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay? Humanity was made to live. To be alive, but not for ourselves alone, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you've never heard anything like that before, let me be the one to tell you today. You were not made for death. You were made to be alive, and you were made to glorify the Lord in that life. And in every moment that we suffer death, whether someone else's or our own, it is a 
distraction from that. It is an interruption. The Bible tells us that death is a thief. In John 10, Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But in those same verses in John 10, 10, he says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Friends, we were meant for abundant life. This is what God made us for in the garden. An abundant life, in fellowship with one another, in fellowship with God above, walking and talking in the garden. This was supposed to be our existence. But because of sin, death has entered in. The enemy has come. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. It is Jesus' mission statement in one line. And everything else that he does and says is summed up in that idea. Everything we can say about eternal salvation about rescue from sin in this life, all of it is wound up in this idea of being in an abundant life. Church, friends, let me just ask you, is your life right now best described as abundant? Or is something missing? See, it makes sense that Jesus would say this, that he would come for this purpose. And this is why death is so disturbing, particularly the death of Jesus. Because if he came to bring life, then how could that possibly be accomplished in death? One of the most profound but simple statements of this is an old saying. I don't know who said it first. Or if this was the exact way that it was said, but I've heard it many ways and many times, and this sums it up, that Jesus Christ died the death that we deserved so that we could live the life only he could live. Have you ever heard that before? That Jesus Christ died the death that we deserved so that we could live the life only he could live. What that means is that there is power in the death of Christ so that we might have life. There is an exchange that happens. And it is an exchange that Jesus goes into willingly and on purpose for our good and for his glory. There is power in his death. And what I want us to, to carry in as we come into the scripture today is that that power carries through in our lives today. Right? Because he died and lives, we what? We live and can face tomorrow. So let us look at the scripture that we're looking at today to see the power for us as we face death. Whether our own death or the death of loved ones, if Jesus tarries at all. So let's go to verses 23 through 24. Again, we're in John chapter 19. And then 23 through 24, and then we're going to Look at 31 through 37 as well here. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us tear it, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, 
They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Friends, just these simple words, this was to fulfill the scripture. We see it here. Then we read this passage, which comes out of Psalm 22, which we read earlier, though we didn't read these words. Then jump with me down to verse 31 through 37. And I'm not going to read this whole thing for us. But what we see here is that Jesus and the other two thieves are on the cross. And they need to rush and make sure they are dead. Usually uh, crucifixion took days. They don't have days. And so the plan is to break the legs of, of the three of them to quicken death. They do that to the first two thieves. Then they realize, well, Jesus is already dead. We don't need to break his legs. It's not going to quicken anything. He is already dead. So just to confirm that, they stick him with a spear in his side, and it tells us that blood and water came out. And then we read at the very end of all of this, verse 36, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Friends, the first power in the death of Christ is the power of scripture fulfilled. The power of scripture fulfilled. What we see here, and I think we should be startled by how wonderful this is, how striking it is that the most literal interpretation of these prophecies are fulfilled in this place. I love the first one in verse 24, that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Right, and what we see for the, the soldiers is that first they, they divide equally what they can divide equally, and then they cast lots for the last piece. They didn't cast lots for all of it, they didn't just divide all of it, but Scripture in the Old Testament gave us two qualifiers, and we see those exact two qualifiers carry out here. We should be taking note that even Jesus can't carry his earthly treasures with him. They get stolen from him in the last final moments of his life. You and I, who hope to carry our treasures to heaven one day, have even less hope than he does of accomplishing that feat. But friends, we, we see this, right? We, we see Scripture fulfilled, and we see it over and over and over again in this passage today. We already read, like we said, Psalm 22. We didn't read verse 18, which reads, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Interestingly, that is an exact translation that we see in 24. Friends, the entire Psalm 22 is a guide for the death of Jesus. As we're preparing our own hearts for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday, my invitation to you is, is to let Psalm 22 be a psalm that you come back to over and over again the next couple weeks. Maybe just commit yourself to reading that psalm every single day for the next two weeks. The entire psalm is about the crucifixion. The entire psalm points forward to what Jesus is doing on the cross. The details are striking and stunning. And not only that, but it gives us a heart picture of what Jesus is going through. Right? Where the Gospels are silent, Psalm 22 speaks volumes of the emotional 
and spiritual anguish that Jesus is in on the cross. We see these details, but not just these. We already read this, so I'm going to point to it. We'll talk way more about this. In Psalm 69, verse 21, it tells us, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. We will talk extensively tonight about what it means for Jesus to thirst. But we see Scripture fulfilled. Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And in Zechariah 12, 10, we read, And I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for the only child for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What we see in this whole passage, in the death of Jesus, John painstakingly spends the time and energy to point out almost everything he says in what we've read today and what we're looking at today is a direct fulfillment of Scripture. Scholars debate about how many times that happens in the life of Jesus. But at minimum... There are 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus directly fulfills, and some scholars argue for as many as 450. There is power in Scripture against the death that we all face. Why? Because what we see in Scripture from the beginning to the end, from the very beginning to all the way at the end, is that everything we read is about Jesus. Everything points forward to him, or is about him, or points backwards to him. For some, some of us, we have trouble reading the Bible. There's a lot of reasons we might have trouble reading the Bible. The first reason you might have trouble reading the Bible is because you're not a Christian. And let me just say, if you're have trouble reading the Bible, and you think you're a Christian, then we need to go to the Holy Spirit together and ask Him for help, because we are told that the Holy Spirit, who lives in every Christian, will help us have understanding of what's written here. I've heard testimonies of, of people who've read the Bible their whole lives. I mean, they were devoted to it, and then they became a Christian, and suddenly things made sense that never made sense before. There are times when as Christians we continue to grow in our faith where suddenly we see things we've never seen even though we've read it 45 times. But there are other reasons too that we may have trouble reading the Scripture. Some of us approach it with a very wrong view. We approach Scripture as if it is written by human beings. Independent in their own thinking, in their own ways. And, and we have listened to those who have said, look, there are contradictions throughout it, and you can tell because it's written by this person and this person and this person, and there's no way that all those people could possibly agree. And so whenever they see an inconsistency, they automatically assume it's wrong. But the trouble is that doesn't take into account the fact, and Scripture testifies to this, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Yes, penned by human authors in their words and out of their minds, 
through the guiding of the Holy Spirit. There is a cohesiveness to Scripture that if we forget about, we can have a lot of trouble reading it. Because we don't know why this piece is here and this piece is here and this piece is here. But let me just say, if all those pieces are all pointing to Jesus, then at least we already have a starting point about what this book is about. We may approach Scripture wrongly because we don't understand that what it is is God telling us about Jesus. We say, well, we don't see the name of Jesus until the book of Matthew. That is correct. But everything that comes before it is pointing to the book of Matthew. <laughs> and when you have eyes to see, you, you open up the Psalms and see how many Psalms are about Jesus, not by name, but about exactly what he did and went through. And we go all the way back to the book of Genesis and we, we look at the, the heroes of the faith, their so-called heroes of the faith there, and we see how each one in their good and in their imperfection points forward to Jesus, right? In their good, this is a quality that Christ will have. And in their perfection, this is where Christ will surpass that one. What we see as we read through the Old Testament all the way through is how much humanity needs somebody outside of themselves to fix this, right? And as we read and as we study, what we discover is that every page is about Jesus. Everything's pointing forward to Jesus. And when we get that, when we understand what the scriptures are doing here, it gives us life. And the thing that we see is that God has always been on this rescue path. He has always been working through this plan. Right? God knows better than we do the problem of death. The creator of everything made us to live, and now there's death. This story is how God fixes that. The entire scripture is God fixing that problem. And so it should not surprise us that when we actually get to the moment of Jesus' death, when John is teaching us all about it in, in his, the book that, that he wrote with his pen through the power of the Holy Spirit, it should not surprise us that, that it is just one fulfillment of Scripture after another. Because, friends, this is what God is doing from the very beginning. He is bring, bringing dead people back to life. And the plan was always for that to happen through his own death. That was always the plan. And so we see the power of Scripture against death. All right, what is the second thing we see? We see the powerful love of Jesus. Verse 25 through 27. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his dis the, the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the, disciples, the disciple took her to his own home. Friends, it's really simply here what we see, and we should be aware that John is writing about himself here. John refers to himself not pridefully as the disciple whom Jesus loved, Curse Jesus loved all of his disciples. But John uses this moniker in the book of John to describe himself, to take his own name out of it. 
But what it also tells us, and, and it's easy to see this in Scripture, that John had a very special relationship with Jesus. John was one of the closest friends of Jesus, and I would argue as you compare him, say, to Peter, that John's love for Jesus is far clearer than Peter's love for Jesus. Right? Peter makes a fool of himself, does the wrong thing over and over again. John, yeah, he does some, some quirky things too. But there's a love there, and, and it is to John that Jesus entrusts his mother. Now just think on that for a minute. Think about being John and having Jesus, who's literally dying right now on the cross, look down, and in the midst of all the pain and all the suffering and all the heartache, he looks at his mom and says, Hey, Mom, he's your son now. And he looks at John and he says, with his mouth, with words, and he says, John, that's your mom now. Take care of her. Now, as a shepherd of God's flock, I just need to tell you, as a shepherd of God's flock, which is what a pastor is, as a shepherd who has been entrusted with somebody else's sheep, you are all, if you are all sheep, you are his, not mine, yet, yet Christ charges his shepherds, he entrusts them to a shepherd to watch over, to an under-shepherd is how we usually refer it. There is a weightiness to that that I can't even communicate to you all. And Scripture's really clear that I will be judged for how I lead this church. For what I teach this church. For how I love this church. Now just think about John being entrusted with Jesus' own mother. The weight of that. As I think about that, I think about um, by the way, this is the only piece in the scripture today that was not, does not have a direct prophecy about it. And think about why that is. I, I just have to be, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit used the weight of this moment in John's own heart to lead him to write this today, to write this for us. Right? It wasn't from something else in, this, in the scripture, but the Holy Spirit is, is pouring in, and John has been so impacted by this moment that he has to include it. It is a demonstration of Christ's love for his mother. It's a demonstration of Christ's love for John, right? Because when you love someone, you entrust to them. You, Man, it's such an amazing picture as well of a spiritual truth that we do not spend enough time thinking, and that is that the spiritual truth of adoption and family transference. Because if we're Christians then we are brought into the family of God. We are adopted in, and Scripture actually tells us that we have the same rights of God the Father as God the Son did. We are given an equal inheritance because, Christian, we are adopted into the family, and there is no hierarchy in that family. There is only brothers and sisters. There is an equality across all aspects. Whether you've been a Christian for 90 years or for 25 seconds, you have the same inheritance in the kingdom of God. Whether you are a man or a woman, you have the same inheritance in the kingdom of God. Whether you've murdered someone or devoted your life to witchcraft or you've been a Christian for every moment of your life, 
We are adopted in and made to be sons and daughters of the king. And we are given all the blessings and we are charged with all the rights thereof. It is a legal transaction as much as it is a relational one. And in this moment, I think Jesus paints this picture for us. He says, he doesn't say, hey, John, take care of my mom. He says, hey, John, take care of your mom. He says, mom, here's John, not, not just here's John, but here's your son. Truly, family is, is important. And I think scripture makes those arguments and calls for that. I think some of us need to be aware as well of how important the family of God should be to us. Right? We may have a primary family that we love and care for, that loves and cares for us. Some of us don't. But when we become Christians, we gain a new family. Now, some of us are blessed and lucky enough to have all of our old family as part of our new family. Some of us don't. Some of us are not just separated by geographical distance from the biological families that we grew up in. We are separated by an eternity of salvation. And we may be orphans in the faith with no other family. We may be widows or widowers of the faith with no other family. Well, church, who do you suppose your fam their family is then? Who do you suppose their family is then? It's the rest of us. And when one in our church is lonely and is lost, that is a weight that we all should carry. Why? Because God entrusts each one of us with his family the same way he entrusted John with his mom and mom with John. We are given each other for a reason. And let me just ask you, church, does your love for other brothers and sisters in the faith match that, or is there something lacking? Do you sacrifice for others in the church? Do you sacrifice? Do you give? Do you encourage? Do you build up? Friends, there should be a weight on this for us, but it is a power that comes from the love of Christ for us and a love of Christ for those he entrusts to us. All right, our third power that we see is in Jesus' words. In Jesus' words. Verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, after this, or after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on his branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, I just want to tell you, these together may be some of the most powerful words we've ever heard. This, I thirst, we've already mentioned, goes back to Psalm 69, verse 21. But it also goes back to Psalm 22, verses 14 through 15. Right, we've mentioned Psalm 22 a bunch of times. This is a great moment and a great illustration of what I've already said, that this is a place we need to be studying right now. So Psalm 22, verse 14, Jesus, or David writing, 
looking forward. He says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, right? What's described here is, is a dryness, not only in Jesus' mouth, but in his heart and in his life in such a way that there is only one thing he can say right before he says it is finished, and that is, I thirst. We live in America. Most of us have spent most of our lives here, which means that most of us have never been thirsty. I mean, we've been parched, right? We've, we've had dry mouths. Some of us who have been on long hikes without water, have found ourselves delirious. Some of us have, have gotten ourselves into trouble. Some of us maybe serving in the military have found ourselves in a way that is truly drier than anybody else we know. But we live in America where clean water is usually as simple as walking to the kitchen or the bathroom and flipping a, a, a lever. Right or stopping by any convenience store and for less than $3 getting your fill of water. Most of us have never truly been thirsty, but here is Jesus. It's been hours. Did he have a drink after the trials that we've been reading about? Did he have a drink after the beatings we've been reading about, after he was paraded around, dressed as a king? Did we... Does anybody stop and say, hey, Jesus, would you like a drink of water? Right? It's been a long time since he's had a drink. And in the middle of that, he has shed more blood than, human, than a human is supposed to be able to shed while still being alive. His body is doing everything it can to recoup the blood, which means liquid. Jesus may be the driest human being in the history of the world right now. He says, I thirst. It sounds to me like an understatement. And again, friends, if we would just read our Bibles, we would know the significance of what it means for someone to thirst. There's a guy named E.M. Blakelock who wrote these words. Just hear them, especially if you're not familiar with Scripture. Because this is one of the stories you see, one of the themes you see throughout Scripture. In Genesis, the herdsmen of the patriarchs strive with the alien for the wells laboriously cut in the hot rock. In Exodus, the panic of thirst shakes and threatens Moses' leadership. Psalmists and prophets liken joy, happiness, life itself, God's grace, to the blessed stream. At Sychar and in the temple courts, the Lord likens water to eternal life. On the mount, he promises eternal life only to those who thirst for righteousness. And the words are caught up in the closing pages of the Bible. One of the themes, along with death you see all the way through Scripture, is the theme of thirst. Why? Because the Bible was written in a place that's drier than Lahana, Colorado. And people knew what it meant to be thirsty. To be thirsty meant to die. It meant to be empty, to have nothing. And now we read about Jesus on the cross thirsting. And it's just striking me when I think about the other words that John has written about Jesus and thirst and water in his gospel, right? He talks about being the living water. 
and the one who can give others a water that would quench their thirst forever. And suddenly, the one who is described as the water of life is dry as a bone. There is an emptiness here that we, that we should shudder over. It is a demonstration of Jesus' true humanity. So one of the things about humans is that we need. We need food to sustain ourselves. We need drink, right? We need air to breathe. We are people who need some form of shelter or life gets really miserable really fast no matter where you live in the world. We are a people who need love, who need compassion, we need grace. Right? The human experience is one of need. But this is the opposite of God. God wants for nothing, needs nothing. John has spent his entire gospel framing the divinity of Jesus, saying, look, Jesus is God over and over and over again. And here we meet Jesus on the cross, and John says, yes, God, but more human than any human who has ever lived because he needs and he knows it and he feels the full depth of that need. Friends, here's the reality. Need fulfilled is life, but need not met is death. And here is Jesus in need, dying. And moments before his death, he declares that need. Friends, we are invited as Christians to need God. We are invited as Christians, commanded as Christians, to need God. James asked the question, what a, a spirit of dependence, that just this morning. Christians, we should have a spirit of dependence. Every breath, every light, every, every, every drink we take, every food we eat, Everything we should depend on God for. Are we living lives of dependence or are we living lives of self-sustenance? Jesus carries it all the way to the end. All the way to the end in his thirst. And you can guarantee that this sour wine did nothing to quench that thirst in the end. Right? A wet tongue covered in vinegar is not a deep, refreshing drink of ice-cold water. So Jesus says, I thirst, and then he says, it is finished. It is finished. And this is, this is powerful. Okay, I'm, I'm saying this quiet, I'm saying this with a weight, but the reality is that is that what Jesus did here is not just say it is finished. What he did is yell it with every last bit of strength he had. You actually read that in the other Gospels. His final cry is a declaration out loud, proclaiming. Right? So it is not the, the cry of, of, of someone who in their weakness is letting their last strength go. It is the cry of one who has been weak but finds that last moment of full strength to declare something out that, that everybody there and everybody in all of future humanity would need. As Jesus declares, it is finished. What is finished? Well, number one, he's dead now. 
And what does his death do? His death brings us life. It is finished. All of the work. Church, hear this. For all of us who have thirsted, it is finished. For all of us who have come to the end of ourselves, it is finished. For all of us who have lost over and over again, it is finished. This is a final cry, not of defeat, but of what? But of victory. Amen. But of victory, right? As Jesus declares that it is done, the word here is my favorite Greek word. It is the word tetelestai. I love this word. If I had a tattoo, it would be right here, from here to here, with this word right here. Why? So that I can see it to daily remind myself that there's nothing more I can do. Because it is finished. I don't have that tattoo. I don't need that tattoo. Why? Because the same words are written on this right here and in this right here. Because it's written here, right? It is finished. Interestingly enough, these same words also mean paid in full, right? That every debt that, that, that was owed has been, been just stamped done. Any of us who have ever been in debt, had those debts forgiven? Any of us who have ever hurt someone and been forgiven? Any of us who have ever sinned and found ourselves free of the consequences of those sins? We have been paid in full. This is what Jesus is talking about. James Montgomery Boyce paints this picture really well. He says, Christ's words were not the final gasping sob of a defeated man or even the firm, deliberate declaration of one who was resigned to his fate. He says, they were a triumphant declaration that the turning point in history had been reached and that the work that Jesus had been sent into the world to do had been done. Friends, what was that work? That we would have abundant life. That we would have abundant life. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And it is this moment, he says, it is finished that abundant life became available to every single one of us. Let me ask you again, is your life abundant? Or is there something missing? As I think about this, this passage and I think about how amazing and powerful this whole picture is, I am also startled by how simple and ordinary it is. Right, here's Jesus in his final moments, and what's happening, right? His possessions are being dispersed. His mom is being taken care of. He's got final words of thirst and whatever else. Think about the process that any of us are going to go through when we die and what's going to happen. Some people are going to distribute what we own. We're going to figure out how to move family on in our absence, right? And there's going to be a moment where the death comes. How ordinary this moment that John describes is and yet it is anything but. See, it's not just a thief. It's not just a man, unnamed, unknown, who's dying on the cross. 
but rather it is the one who clothes the lilies of the valley and the birds of the air who is his clothing stolen and gambled over. We should be heartbroken that the one who has instituted our adoption as children of God would need to give his mother over to the care of another. How hard it is to hear that the one who had given living water could cry out for thirst. How is it that the Lord and creator of life could cry out and give up his final breath? It is for love. For men and women like you and I, for he came to bring us life. To give us life. It was his purpose. And friends, the reason why death is so startling to us is because we were not made for death. We were made for life. And there is only one way to have life, and that is through Christ. For some of us, we have, we have grabbed a hold of that life. We are clinging to it with everything that we have. The good news is that it doesn't depend on our strength. It's he's the one clinging to us. But for some of us, we are still going through this life apart from true life, apart from eternal life, apart from abundant life. And as we look at Jesus, we must decide whether or not what he did was real or not. And let me just tell you, if, if it was real, then today is the day, not just to worship him, but to give your life to him, to give him your whole heart, to believe in him, to trust in him for salvation to let this be the first day of true life in your life. To walk away from death, from the death that is guaranteed and promised because of the wages of our own sin, the things that we have done, and to gain what he has given, which is life. And if that describes you today, then I want you to find me or Scott or anyone else in this room that you know loves Jesus and, and ask me or them, what must I do to find that life? What must I know? Who must I know? Let's talk. Today's the day. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. Lord God, we thank you that even though we may face death in this life, because of your death and your life, Lord, we do not face that eternally. God, we thank you so much for facing a death you did not have to face so that we who have to face it could escape. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and minds right now, Lord, and especially over the next couple weeks as we, I pray as a church, really meditate on what it means that, that Jesus would be crucified, that he would die, that he would be buried, and that we would celebrate, and it would cause a celebration such that we have never celebrated in two weeks on, on Easter Sunday. Lord, I pray that you would be working in our hearts and our minds in this season, God, to lead us to you, to grow in us our faith, our hope, our love. God, all gifts from you to us, God, undeserved. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we give you this day. Amen.